0: everyone, my name is Melody Jones-Poynton.
1: And I'm the Reverend Thomas de Marmute.
0: And we are excited to walk the Sunrise Road together today.
1: The Sunrise Road podcast is a podcast with conversations that connect and weave hope into the fabric of our shared lives.
0: Thank you for joining us, and here's this week's conversation. I am so excited to welcome our guest this week on our podcast. She is, I'm so fortunate to say, a dear friend of mine and has become a dear friend because of our shared passion for the people of the South Sudan and the kindred spirits that we find in a country far away from us here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Sharon Candle is the... um, regional liaison for the Horn of Africa, for the PCUSA, and has served with the PCUSA in missions for many years. And I'm gonna let her tell a little bit more about what she has done and what she does and why she does it. Thank you so much, Sharon, for being with us today.
2: Well, thank you, Melody and Thomas, for having me on. Pushing me a little bit out of my comfort zone, but that's always a good thing, right? Um, My comfort zone is Africa. It's not in the United States on uh, calls like this. Uh, So let's see, what do I do? I am the regional liaison for the Horn of Africa. So that covers uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. My husband and I lived in South Sudan from uh, late 2014 until 2020 when everybody retreated back to their homes wherever they were around the world when the pandemic hit. Uh, And since then, I have stayed uh, in the United States. I'm continuing to do the work, but I just travel back and forth from my home here in Ohio. I have a very long history in the Horn of Africa. I was born in Ethiopia and grew up there, graduated from high school there. My parents were missionaries in what was then Sudan and is now South Sudan and then in Ethiopia. Uh, Fun little tidbit here. My father was also a mission kid. He was born in Tanta, Egypt, grew up there until he was 16 years old. So I am third generation PCUSA missionary. How's that do for a starter, Melody?
1: Wow. Even a third generation African? yeah yeah wow.
2: Yep, Third generation Africa uh, coworker. I I'm so blessed and privileged to be able to be back in the countries where I, the country where I grew up in Ethiopia to visit there, but then to also be in South Sudan and getting to know South Sudan in a way I didn't. I lived there until I was you know four or five years old, so vague memories. But to be able to go back and hear stories of of my parents, when they were serving there and they're not all good stories, which is good. I'm, I'm glad to hear the the good and the bad to know, you know, how to change as we go forward in the mission field. So yeah, I just feel really blessed. I had time in Khartoum before all the fighting started in, in Khartoum. I was there in February um, visiting places that I've heard my parents and my grandparents talking about. So yeah. It's been
0: fun so far. Well, I wanna um, thank you for your relationship with Lincoln and with us at Eastridge. Thomas, I think was the first one of us to reach out to you and make a connection. And then you came and you visited with us and um, I'm very thankful for the relationship in part because of the members of our community that are originally from the South Sudan and are living with us here and part of our worshipping community and i have to tell you there are like so many moments of just shared joy that i have with you but um i was as i was reflecting and thinking about last year in the mission network um i i think you're going to remember this moment but we were walking after getting ice cream at the dairy store and we were walking across east campus And we were walking behind um, some of the women from our South Sudanese community here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And you took a deep breath and you said, this is so good. This just reminds me of being a little girl. And I thought this for me is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to have um, aunties and uncles and um, people who are um, sharing their faith with us from all over the world and teaching us that it's not showing us that it's not just one way to be a community or to be the people of God. So um, thank you for all those moments that that you have have brought to us at, at Eastridge. Um, but I do want to hone in a little bit on something that you said just a minute ago, um, and I'll take it as an, int- uh, oh, an entryway, um, because one of the things that we've been talking about is how much mission has changed
2: mm-hmm.
0: over the years and what is happening now with the church as we sort of come to a reckoning of saying we've done a lot of really good things. <laughs> and there have been some things that we haven't done so well and as a third generation you ju- you you just said you know hearing some of those things the good and the things that are are challenging um and I don't even know really what the question is there other than just how do those things sort of float in your in your mind as um what are we doing that's good what are we doing that's better what what can we improve on now and how has it changed over the years and take any one of those questions you want?
2: Oh, wow. Melody, boy, throw a bunch at me at once. So I don't get <laughs> Holy Just whichever one you want. <laughs> well, it's, it is all uh, intertwined. Um, it's a good question. It's a complicated question with no easy um, answer. I don't even know that there's a right answer, really. Um, being third generation, I've recently been going through all of my parents' letters. So it's letters that my um, grandparents wrote to my parents when they were first engaged in getting married, um, and then letters that my parents wrote. So I have history from back in the early, early 40s. I have letters from the early 40s up until when I graduated from high school in 1977, which tells you how old I am. I'm an old lady. Um but it's been interesting reading through those those letters, and even in those letters, seeing some change happen from my grandparents' generation to my parents' generation, and then seeing how I'm approaching uh, the work as a, as a co-worker on the mission field now, how that's changed even from my parents' time frame. So, you know, when when my grandparents' group generation was first going out they really were taking the word of of God they were spreading the gospel they were bringing it to people for the very first time so it was a different time period in, in all of our lives and it um, they approached it in a, in a more of a way we're we're coming we've got the good news let, you know let us tell you about it and and you know just kind of preaching and and getting it out there and then when my father and mother went out, it was okay. You you've had the word of God. Um, now how are we moving forward with it? So that's when they started doing more of the developing of, of hospitals and um, schools, clinics, those kinds of things. Doing more of the the institutional things, and it was all being run by the co-workers, training. the the national people there, but it was being run by the co-workers. My generation now is going out with, you all have more experience. You have the ability. You have the capacity to do these things. We just want to walk along beside you. We're not in front of you. We're not behind you. We want to be beside you, working with you, not for you, not over you. And I think that's the way we should be doing it. It's difficult. We are still seen as, you know, the people coming from the United States or from wherever. We are seen as coming with money that we should be able to um, come in and, and solve the financial issues. It's, but it's working with the local church helping them to see that it's not just a financial issue that they may be having with a hospital. That's not being run properly or doesn't have the drugs and things to run properly. It's more of how are you running the hospital? Is it being run in a way that's sustainable or not? And what is your idea of sustainable? Not my idea of sustainable. What is your idea of sustainable and how, what should be available and what, um, what should be available as far as medicines and what do you think is appropriate for people to have to be buying on their own? Not what I think, but it needs to be what they think. What is appropriate for that culture? For um, yeah, you know, Primarily, what is appropriate for that culture and how does their Christian faith reflect that? Um, how is their culture influencing their faith or how is their faith influencing their culture? Both ways. But you know what? That applies to here in the States, too. How does our culture here in the United States influence what Christians are doing today? Or how are Christians influencing <laughs> government in the United States, if that's possible? Um, so it's, you know, it's it's been interesting to see those changes of the kind of the white person going in is the one who knows everything to the white person who doesn't know everything uh, than to the white person who's saying, I really don't know everything and you need to teach me. So I'm seeing that kind of a broad, and that's a very broad answer to Mm -hmm. to your Mm -hmm. question. Um, If you've got something more specific you want me to speak about on that, go ahead and ask, but I don't know how much time we have on this this podcast, so I'm trying to make it an overview, (laughs) unless there's more time.
1: I think this is a very, very helpful overview of, of the development. I also picked up on, uh, you, 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 um, the terminology you shifted as you were talking about your grandparents as missionaries to, to mission coworkers. Um, that expresses a different image with that, what you said with the being alongside. Um, the other element I hear is uh, what you said about, and I remember we had a prior uh, conversation with, with Barbara a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, I, th- I think it's our Western trap that we, we, we're the doers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and, and to, to move to, to become human beings, not just human doings, uh, al- alongside, um, our partners, um, and the other element, what you said, from, from the person who knows everything to become the person, the learner, I think that is a, a really important shift. I, I find sometimes it's a little bit when you have that ambivalent uh, history of of, of um, missions, it's, for me, easy to become overwhelmed. Like, well, I guess we're not doing anything anymore better. And um, can you share a little bit about how the how the role of the mission co-worker can be a fruitful role uh, in specific ways today.
2: I think there's a lot of ways that the mission co-worker can still have, um, is needed and has an active role. The biggest thing, I think, is the sharing of being able to be that bridge, the sharing of knowledge. So they go and they live in South Sudan, and when they come back to the States, they can share the story of the people of south sudan and it can be it's not the story of oh these are you know as was said many many years ago oh these are you know the natives who need this that and the other thing it's no these are the south sudanese who they have so much to offer mm-hmm. and this is this is what they have to offer us i think it's an understanding of they it, there are times when i feel like the people of Ethiopia or South Sudan or Sudan have much more to offer to us in the United States than we have to offer to them. And one of those things that they have to offer us it, as Christians is the understanding of of the spiritual world. They they understand that there is a, a spiritual world out there where we Americans we kind of tend to you know oh uh, you know I'm in control you know I I can control everything around me. Where I would say in general, with the people that I work with, they understand that there is a spiritual world out there. And we need to be more aware of that here in the United States. We need to understand what the power of prayer really is about. We need to spend more time in prayer, um, asking for God's guidance and um, fighting against the evil in the world. So I think that the mission, the role of a mission co-worker anymore is to be that bridge, that sharing of knowledge and sharing with, say, the for the co-workers in South Sudan, sharing with the South Sudanese the needs that, that there are in the United States, asking for prayer for the United States, for for the Presbyterian Church USA. You know, I mean, we all need prayer back and forth. We still have skills that we can offer. That doesn't say that it's skills that they don't have. We have uh, a teacher at Nile Theological College, a mission coworker who's teaching there. He is the only non-South Sudanese teaching there. So it's not like they don't have teachers. We can still be of assistance at their request by offering to have a teacher there that is not costing them funds so that they have funds then that can be used for other things. It's not that they don't have teachers, they just don't always have the um, capacity to be able to pay people. So here's a teacher who can come um, and teach full time, which frees money for them to be able to do other things. So I think we still have a place and sometimes that place, for instance, we have another coworker in South Sudan who is working in trauma healing. And through the work that she's been doing, she's been able to connect people in Ethiopia, connect with people in Ethiopia, and get the training for them to be able to do that same kind of trauma healing in Ethiopia. Where well, I'm not sure we would have had that connection if it hadn't been for that coworker that was able to make that connection between these two different countries. Now that that connection has been made, the Ethiopians and the South Sudanese can can go forward with it however they want without any input from us so um but I still it still for me it goes back to the mission co-worker is the one that can carry the story back and forth mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question
1: yeah but uh, <laughs> yeah. but but, but I, I love that image of the carrying the story back and forth and and I think there's a trap um, these days that through social media and so on, we think we don't need that translation work because we have immediate access to the stories. But I think it's a little bit like reading the Bible. The immediate access is often illusioned and we project our story into it and we need that translation work Um
2: well, and can you imagine how much fuller our understanding of the Gospels are if we can be hearing about it from people from different cultures? <laughs> you know, we we hear, it, you know, everybody hears it and reads it from a different perspective. And I know that for me personally, I have gained so much in having conversations around um, theological discussions, you know, scripture passages and stuff um, with my brothers and sisters in, in Ethiopia and in South Sudan. They'll ask me questions that it's like, oh, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But when, you know, I'm thinking about, oh, well, yeah, from their cultural understanding. Yeah, I it does bring a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So we need that. And that's where, yeah, you're right. That's where coworkers can come in and they can help to share that, those stories back and forth. Sorry, I kind of mm-hmm. jumped yeah. in on you. <laughs>
1: well, absolutely. Um, would you... Can you share a way how the the gospel message has been changed or articulated differently uh, through your experience um, with our mission partners?
2: Um, well, I think one of the things that, like I said, I grew up in Ethiopia. One of my earliest memories of an Easter sunrise service is sitting outside on the mountainside, outside of Addis Ababa. Um, and we were out there before sunrise and watching the shepherd boys, shepherding the, the sheep all, all around us. And I can remember as a child, oh, that makes so much. Yeah, that makes these scriptures come alive in a way that I had never really experienced before. And then as an adult to go back and hear, hear the the Christians in South Sudan speaking about Cultural aspects um, from from their culture, looking at it and thinking, wow, they really, you know, they grew up in basically the same kind of a cultural environment of what Jesus was in. And so they look at scripture just a little bit differently on some of those. They take very seriously that, um, for example, um, this is a very simple one, but even the drinking of alcohol that it should only be drunk if you have a, a medicinal need. So if your stomach is upset, that is the only time you should mm-hmm. drink it. I'm not saying these are right or wrong, I'm just giving an example. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then there's other things of, of washing feet, the washing of feet. Jesus did it at the Last Supper. They take that very seriously. When someone comes into their home, because you've been walking on dusty, dirty roads, at least in the New Air culture, they greet you with a pail of water, and they literally wash your feet before you come into their home. Okay, would we do that here in the United States? I don't think so. But it's it's a it's a way of serving one another. They look at it as a way of serving one another. They don't do foot washing ceremonies, you know, like here in the states we have communion and foot washing. They don't do that, but they do foot washing on a regular basis where it is truly serving. Okay, sometimes that can be taken a little too far, but, you know, that's okay. You know, that's a cultural thing, and that's where you have discussion. What does that actually mean, and um, what is the purpose of foot washing, and, you know, is there a religious meaning behind it, or is it just simply I'm welcoming you? and what does being a servant to one another truly mean because having a servant is not an unusual thing in africa um not uh, for africans and for co-workers and so what does that mean honor your you know to 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 be a servant to somebody but also to be a brother and a sister alongside them how do you how do you make that work you know it, being a servant doesn't necessarily mean mean being the lowly person in the home. Uh, it means, in many homes, it means being a valued member of the home that has specific jobs to do, but they are a valued member. Melody, I'm you look like you're going to I'm
0: just thinking as well, because we're... Um, doing a a Bible study by Caroline Lewis, a book study Mm -hmm. on belonging. And she's really focusing in on the story of the woman at the well in John Mm -hmm. chapter four. Um, And uh, in preparing for the study, um, really thinking about what it means to meet someone at the well. And as you're talking about all of these images of life that are different, you know, like she has to go into such depth to tell us what it's like. To what would it mean for somebody to be at the well at the highest point of the day, at the hottest part of the day? Like that's not when you go to the well. <laughs> you that's go right. when it's when it's cool. And thinking about our friend um, Bui um from Aqua Africa, and thinking about what I've learned about the culture and and the place of of well living, and and thinking, there's a lot of things that we have to have explained to us because we don't understand that intuitively would be very much alive and present for someone who has a well in, in their town. Um, And she, she is also talking um, about when you're traveling by foot, when you're walking Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you also have to consider safety. So how do you travel around a countryside where it's not um, necessarily um, safe everywhere you go, and of course we know in the Sudan and South Sudan, there are um, right now there's a war in Sudan, and um, Peter Dack, who we um, is a member of our. Community and is uh, currently still serving in the government in South Sudan as the Minister of Education for the Upper Upper Nile has been on the border with the refugee um, mm-hmm. camps that are springing up, and so has Shelvis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and did I see our friend Thomas Toot um, in that video? Have you seen that video that Doug Tilton put together? Was that not Thomas Toot? That was not Thomas Toot. All right, I'm. I'm. I'm sure I learned last summer that there are many toots because yes. it, it it's not your last name. So it, they're not all related to each other, but it was a different toot, I'm sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it um, it so, was a different toot. But yes, you're you're right. Just the basic, you know, you, the woman at the well is a really good example. You know, that she was at the at the well at noon. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of things behind um. All kinds of things that I don't think people realize, you know, she was at the well at noon, um, but Jesus, a male, a Jewish male, spoke to her, which was also not a normal thing to have happen. And Africans understand that because they still have all of their ethnic groups and they're they're very strong lines and so they understand when they're reading some of those scriptures they understand like you know the good samaritan well of course they're not going to help you know you you wouldn't help somebody that's not from your your tribe so they they understand a lot of those scriptures in a way that we can't unless they're really like you said until somebody sits down and really you know explains the whole thing to you And Thomas, that goes back to that's where the co-workers come in. They're Mm -hmm. able to share some of those stories back. But I think it's also important for us to be inviting people from South Sudan, um, Ethiopia and Sudan to come and visit with us here in the United States where they can tell us their stories themselves. But then they're also learning more about us and they can go back. I don't know whether it's a good thing or not, but they can go back and share what they've learned about Americans living in America. I'm not Wait. always sure that that's a good thing.
1: What are they, what are they sharing? Huh? Yes,
2: what are they yeah. sharing? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, that's where you have that's where you have partnership. That's where you have community. That's where you have family. When you have that true sharing back and forth of the good and the bad. hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think to highlight the good
0: and the bad, um, again, Thomas Toot, who spent some time with us um in Lincoln last summer, and he is the moderator of the um South, South of Sudan Espec- Presbyterian Evangelical Church. Thank you. Um <laughs> and um I had such joy showing him around town and sort of taking him to the sites, and I he saw Memorial Stadium. Which seats somewhere around a hundred thousand football fans, and we're notorious one of the longest running, you know, attendance sold record sold out
1: streak. Yep.
0: Sold out streaks there is, and he saw it and he said, "You only use it once a week for yeah. a certain part of the year. If I had this, we could pack this out with people worshiping." And I was like, oh, okay. okay." But like now I know our South Sudanese community is planning a reunion here. And we heard about it last summer, but it's July 1st and 2nd. And they can't find a venue big enough in Lincoln or in Omaha for all of the people that they anticipate coming. Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, they could rent out Memorial Stadium, but it's expensive. So, but like to think about... The things in that, you know, because I would take in and I would show him churches and he would say, it's only open once a week. I don't understand. There's, you know, there's so much here. And I was like, well, I guess, I mean, we just, we don't think about it that much or that's, you know, that's just not as much a part of our daily life or I don't know. But he really, he really um challenged
2: me to think about that in a different way. Church, church buildings in most of Africa that I've been in, are used every day. Sometimes it's a school during the week or um, adult classes in the evenings, meetings, whatever, but they they are used every single day. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I have heard that many times from visitors here. Your church sits empty during the week. Don't you do anything in there? What's going on? The other thing that we hear a lot is... um, Why are, why is everybody in the church all have gray hair? (laughs) You don't have any young people in your churches. What are you, you know, and this is where uh, Thomas, this goes back to, we have a lot to learn. Their churches are full of all ages. Our churches tend to be full of gray haired people. And I think we need to be talking to our brothers and sisters in Africa to find out what are they doing to bring people into the church? Why is the church so important to 20 and 30 year olds in Africa where it's not here in the United States? You know, partly I know the answer partly is simply that the church is where they have hope. That's where they find their hope. That's where they they find their joy. So they're willing to go there because it means a lot to them. They don't have much else. Where here in the United States. Our 20 and 30 year olds can be distracted by, I want to go fishing on on Sunday morning or I want to go boating or... There's a lot of distractions. Mm -hmm. We'll just put it that way. That's probably the nicest way to put it.
0: Yeah. A lot of other ways to find something to yeah something
2: else I guess and that's not that you can't find God when you're out fishing or camping but it's what is your what is the priority in your life and what does church mean to you or does it mean enough that you're willing to support it mm-hmm. in more than just giving money in every once in a while and that's something that I know that in the Ethiopian church is taught very early on. What does it mean? Um, And they require their, their youth to do a certain amount of work. They're not perfect. Believe me, they're not perfect. They they themselves will say they're not perfect and that they've got a long ways to go. They need the, the faith of the people in their church to be deeper than it, than it is. But I think they're, putting more effort into it than we are I was asked
0: um I don't, it was it was when you were here the first time um and uh, I was asked by a member of our congregation at the time why why is this important why do we do this why do we have this connection and my answer at the time was because this is our family, because these are siblings in Christ. We're connected because of this way that we follow this person that we claim as savior and, and Lord. And, and that certainly doesn't make it a a perfect relationship. Um, Paul writes a lot about all of the many things that are (laughs) happening in community. Um, But I do think that um, I have romanticized and I know I have romanticized the idea of living in community.
2: <laughs>
0: um, it's not always pretty <laughs> and that it is harder than my romantic visions um, allow me to see sometimes. But I think um, what we're what what is making the headlines in in Sudan and South Sudan right now is is just showing us how incredibly difficult it is to live in community. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't remember exactly how many different, um, tribes there are and how many different ethnicities there are in South Sudan. I know that, um, new air typically we there's 64. 64. Mm -hmm. So you're getting 64 different groups of people. And, and so for anybody who's, who's, listening and wondering like why why do we hear about this 64 that's a, that's a lot of different um, folks to try to get along
2: it is and the 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 dinka are the largest group and the newer are the second largest group and from there on down the numbers get a lot smaller and so you know it's not really much different than here in the united states where you know, you if you live in a community that is primarily Democrat and there's a few Republicans in there, well, those you know the Republicans are going to kind of get pushed to the side, or vice versa, whichever way. You know, um, it's the same in in South Sudan among the ethnic groups. If you're a large ethnic group, you're going to have a lot more power, and you're going to push down the others. And it's those others trying to figure out how do we, we just want to live. We just want to survive. We just want to, you know, we don't care about all the power and everything. We just want to have a good life. And finding that, that medium ground where you can kind of say, okay, the larger groups need to just let the the smaller groups be and let them just live um, in peace. If, if you guys want to have, you know, if you, if you guys Can't agree, keep it just among yourselves, but don't start including all of the other people within the country. And, you know, I say that knowing that if the United States here among our our states in the United States, if we were to start disagreeing, well, those that had the most power or the most people would try to dominate. And how would, you know, say a small state like Rhode Island feel? You know, so, you know, we, we often will look at Africa at being, oh, they're just so, you know, there's these tribal issues, or ethnic issues. And so we need to turn and look at ourselves, because it is here in the United States just as much as it is anywhere else in the world. And, you know, they're doing the best that they can with the, what they what they have and the circumstances that they're living in. Um. You know, for for me to come in and say, y'all are doing it dumb is wrong because I don't, you know, I haven't lived in their shoes. I don't fully, I, I understand a lot, but I don't fully understand because I didn't grow up there in the way they did. I didn't grow up as a South Sudanese. I didn't grow up as an Ethiopian. I grew up as a privileged white missionary kid. Um, but I do understand that we have the same issues here in the United States, and we need to be looking at ourselves and maybe asking our partners in Africa for help. How do you How do you do this? How do we how do we forgive one another? How do we do outreach across lines? You know, it's just, um, when I think of what some of the people are doing and they're just saying, we don't care whether you're from our tribe or not. We're going to come and live in your community. We want to get to know you. We want to be a part of you. Thinking, okay. Well, are we willing to do that here in the United States? I'm not sure. So I think we we have a lot to learn from each other. And I love the life I have with, with being challenged by the people in Africa. I love my conversations there where they will will challenge me on issues. It may start out as a simple question but then we get into deep conversations and I love it. It's humbling <laughs> and scary. Mm-hmm. But I love it.
0: I want to um thank you for that perspective because I think one of the things that often happens when we think about mission <clears throat> that we've talked a lot about is the idea that we're that we are going in to teach or to save or to improve or to you know our our youth are just coming back from a, a mission experience on um a Native American reservation mm-hmm. in North Dakota and we've spent a lot of time saying you are going to learn mm-hmm. you're going to learn um and let this experience open your heart and your minds to to change where we need to change because we don't want to go in assuming that we, can teach or have a a better way, you know, I think anywhere, I think in any situation, like, why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you go in and say, I can, I can fix this. Um, And clearly there are some, some um, headline issues in Sudan, particularly with the war. And and this is, you know, sort of on the forefront of my mind and a lot of folks' minds as we think about um, the Sudan and South Sudan. And it is a crisis situation. Um, but it's a good reminder to us for us to not cast judgment on it and say, oh, we just need to go in and show them the better well, way. You know, I- we have no idea.
2: <laughs> I've had people say that, you know, maybe we need to just go in and take care of it. And I'm thinking, how would you feel if if people from Sudan came into the United States and said, you know, y'all aren't doing it right and we're going to make you do it right? We wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. We don't have the right to go in and tell them the right way to do things. I One of the early lessons I learned from my father was we can't tell people how to do it. Because if you go in and you tell them how to do it, they won't follow it for very long. But if you go in and say, let's have a conversation, let's talk, please explain to me, you know, your ideas, your thoughts, why, why you're doing it this way, let me understand. And maybe together we can either come up with something or I will step back and you all decide. If you decide if the new decide for themselves that this is how they're going to go forward, they're going to follow it. If an American comes in and says, this is what you're going to do, they're not going to follow it. I wouldn't. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of it is just listening under, you know, trying to understand the best you can somebody else's perspective, but also understanding that they have to, they have to reach their own conclusions. They have to make their own rules. They have to, you know, make whatever peace agreements they're going to make that they feel that they can stick to. Then, because it's a joint decision, they they're signing on the on the line. It's not an American telling them to. They've made the decision to, of their own free will, to sign on that line. And I that's that's just stuck in my head as I've gone back out as a coworker. I'm not there to tell them what to do. Heavens to Betsy's, half of the people that I work with in, in Africa are far better, more educated than I am. I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm there to listen. I'm there to, to make connections for them. I'm there to help build bridges as between the United States and there. Um, if we want to be in true partnership, we have to really be able to listen to each other. That's my big mantra is listening. And I, and I do feel it is really important because as we listen to Melody, to the, to the diaspora that are living in your community, the best thing that can happen for them is for the local folks to listen, to sit and just listen. These are people that are hurting desperately. They're missing home. They're missing family that they haven't seen in who knows how long. They need somebody to just listen to them to understand where they're coming from. Isn't that what we all need? I mean, I like people to listen to me to understand where I'm coming from. Let's do the same for others. Sorry. That is a little soapbox of mine. I apologize. That's an awesome soapbox there.
1: Mm -hmm. It is, it is an awesome soapbox. And I, um,
0: I'm so, again, so thankful for your guidance, for our congregation, um, for uh, sort of sharing with us from the beginning. You know, I think that we, from the beginning of our relationship, we had long before that established um, a relationship with the Mocker Village and have... Um, been working with Aqua Africa for some wells. We still do not have those wells because our part of um, South Sudan is is pretty remote and difficult to get things um, there safely. And so we're still um, hoping for those wells to be there soon. But in the meantime, we've worked together with them Mm -hmm. to um, build a church and we have members of our community who do carry messages back and forth Mm -hmm. um, to us. But I think that your encouragement for our congregation to, to listen and um, you know, the, the trauma training, which we're picking up back up again, we're really excited for our recent connection being reconnected with our friend, Rachel Weller, um, and, uh, hoping that we can together ecumenically here in, in Lincoln be listening, um, because we know living in a refugee city that there's a lot of, there is a lot of listening that needs to be done and a lot of healing that needs to be done. So, um, Thank you for your encouragement in
2: well I'm I'm excited about your working with Rachel Weller and um, getting some kind of diaspora trauma healing program started, even if it's you know very slow going, but we need to get it started somewhere and I think Lincoln is a great place for it to start. You already have people trained there. Rachel coming in can just be a it's not that you don't that there aren't Members of your diaspora group that are you have people in your diaspora group that are trained already in the trauma and healing, so it's not that Rachel Weller is coming in with something that isn't already available. Sometimes it just takes somebody from the outside coming in to help get things moving along. Rachel Weller is a has 25 years, um, was lived in Ethiopia for 25 years as a mission co worker, she was also. Born and grew up in in Ethiopia alongside me. I'm two months older than her, so I get to boss her around. Um, <laughs> but she she um, she did trauma healing work in Ethiopia, so she understands the need for it. But she also understands the need to listen to those that she is with. And so I'm really excited that she's coming into that community. Where you already have people trained, but maybe just need that that little push, that little bit of encouragement from somebody who has also done that work. Um, just to come in and say, let let's let's pick this up again and keep moving. And Thomas, that goes back a little bit to even what you said, what do coworkers have to offer? Sometimes it's just that little bit of encouragement from somebody from the outside who can come in and say, hey, you know what? You're already doing this work and you're doing a really good job at it. How can I come along and help you to do more if you want to do more? Not mm-hmm. you need to do more, but you're already doing a great job.
1: Right. You Out can. of the, the listening growth and, and empowerment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the connection. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, we talk so much about partnership and community and and family. And sometimes when we talk about it, we forget that. Being in partnership means listening to one another, and that's how partnerships, I mean, honestly, you know, when I first went to Lincoln and met Melody for the first time in the community there, you know, for me, it was, I had to try to listen. I had to hear what Melody was saying. This is what my community is. These are the people who are in my community for me to even know what to say from the, from the pulpit, I needed to listen first to what Melody said. I'm not saying I did a great job, but I did listen. I don't know if I said the right things, but I tried to listen. And one of the things I heard from, from the diaspora group that were there was they appreciated the fact that I said that they were a good resource within the community. That made them feel valued. And I just thought, wow, you know, well, that, I, you know, I hadn't and that wasn't my intention. I just said it because I know it's true. They are a great resource within your community. But to hear them say that, oh, wow, that made us feel valued. Just reminded me once again, we need to listen and we need to hold each other up. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much for all all of that because i mean we truly well because really in lincoln nebraska we are a refugee city and our refugees are one of our greatest assets here mm-hmm. they are one of the greatest resources that we have and the more we listen to them and the more we um are in a position to be where they're connecting with each other and mm-hmm. we're seeing what they're doing um then, you know, we are we are changed as a community. So we're really excited to be getting together and to be networking and resourcing and making connections. And so great to sit in a room um, just happened recently where we were Thomas and I were sitting in a room with Peter Dack. and Thomas said, oh, I have a friend. Do you know him? And Peter lit up and he said, oh, what a great kid. Oh, he's a man now. He's a man now. I need to remember that. And I thought, you know, this is so this community has so many um great resources in 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 our refugees and for us at Eastridge to have members of the South Sudanese um, diaspora, which simply just means the people who are spread far from home, um, that who are who are not able to be home and who are now living in places that are unfamiliar. Um, and, and sort of living in two worlds, which is kind of what you do as well. I mean, you grew up in a, a different um, setting and context and and you are, as you say, a, a wonderful bridge. So thanks for sh- spending time with us and sharing your wisdom with us.
2: I appreciate well, it. Well, you pushed me out of my comfort zone, but it was, it's, it's been really good. <laughs> I appreciate it. And every time I get pushed out of my comfort zone, I know I, I grow and learn. So thank you for that. <laughs>
0: and we are hoping to send, I think we're now at five-ish people from um Lincoln, Nebraska to the South Sudanese Sudanese Mission Network conference. So um, oh, that's
2: wonderful. right.
1: yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, um, a few from our congregation and some from Westminster as well, I believe are planning to attend. so
2: that's good. i'm I'm really glad. I was worried that nobody was going to show up because it's the middle of the week. Wow, <laughs> so I'm glad so- that that's good.
0: Thank you so much, and we will see you
2: soon. Okay, thank you, both Melody and Thomas, for this time.
1: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sunrise Road Podcast. Our podcast is hosted by me, Thomas DuBernoud.
0: And me, Melody Jones-Poynton. And it is edited by Vince Rule.
1: The Sunrise art Podcast is a ministry of East Rich Presbyterian Church. Please like and subscribe and leave a review.